Hello everybody, welcome to episode 106 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major, co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall. This is the podcast where we talk about recent discoveries in the world of reptiles and amphibians. We go through some scientific papers and we chat about what's going on, basically. And today we've got a few papers, well two to be specific, one about some frogs and their unusual diets and then one about snakes and sort of a biogeographical one with a new species description which is pretty exciting i think it's gonna be uh you know it's this type of species that doesn't get described every day so um yeah a very charismatic animal so that'll be cool to have a chat about um but yeah in the meantime we got a paper about some frogs and their unusual diets yeah i mean you said we're, we're doing like new new papers this one's actually from uh 2006 <laughs> okay yeah so you know just because of how different it is i feel like it deserves a little bit of special treatment yeah we do occasionally dip back into the archives and uh yeah this one is from way back in 2006 uh and the paper is the silver and brito Pereira. as we said 2006 how much fruit do fruit eating frogs eat an investigation on the diet of xenophila truncata journal of zoology this was published in so, what 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 do frogs eat? Frogs classically considered obligate carnivores. Yeah, they eat bugs. Yeah, and nothing but bugs. But so the story goes. Yeah, well, so, so the story went. Well, yeah, until, until people started looking at what they they present a couple of examples or a trio of examples. Right, you've got the cane toad actually, Bufo marinus, or was Bufo marinus? It's now something else, isn't it? Rinella. That's yeah. a ticket. Um, Bufo regularis, which I suppose is the regular toad. <laughs> That's just the regular old, plain old toad. <laughs> and then you've got Rana succulenta and Rana hexadactyla of examples R- that, you know, this, this is, this is them doing a, a sort of broad search for information about frogs eating non, uh, I was going to say non living things, non animate things i.e. plant matter mm. um, and it seems pretty scant and therefore pretty special and pretty weird yeah that it, it i mean it is unusual that frogs would eat fruit especially as if you've seen videos of frogs hunting generally they tend to be pretty strongly visual predators where mm-hmm. they are looking for movement and it's you know there's that classic video of the they've like plonked a toad in front of a, a a mobile game <laughs> having a word like, of a time <laughs> yeah there's like loads of worms crawling down the screen and it's just like relentlessly pinging its tongue at them so they are like actually quite impressive predators although they're vulnerable to lots and lots of things like um if you tread on one it's game over if it gets too dry forget about it but they are still very adept predators of their small prey and so yeah it's just not really something we think of frogs and fruit but Paper came out in 1989 by Silver et al. And essentially they were doing fieldwork in this Restinga de Marica, which is in Rio de Janeiro. It's like a sand dune formation next to the ocean with this sort of scrubby, sandy floor and patchy vegetation. Lots of uh, cacti. <laughs> cacti. Cacti. And, and bromeliads. And... Uh, yeah, so cacti and bromeliads all over the place, sandy, sort of xeric, they would say, mm. scrubby vegetation. So Good it's, word. yeah, not a, not a 
an environment you'd immediately think of as hospitable to frogs. But they were doing some field work here and they collected some frogs and they were on the way back with them to the laboratory and the frogs were pooing out seeds. And the scientists were like, hang about, well, what? They're pooing out seeds. And uh, as it turns out, yeah, they were eating fruit. And so the idea of this one was to kind of go back to this restinged America in uh, Rio de Janeiro on the coast and catch a bunch of these frogs and uh, see what's going on. Why? When are they eating fruit? Yeah. What kind of fruits are they eating? What Are they eating other parts of the plants? And uh, is there a kind of cycle to their yearly diet? And if there is, what can it tell us? Yeah, was this and, was this a fluke or is it something consistent that you can see across the population? And when does it happen? Yeah. And the frog we're talking about is Xenohyla truncata. Did you did you Google these? What do they look like? Um, I I I gotta say for for the prep of this episode and whatnot, I looked at a lot of pictures of a lot of frogs, um, and I must admit they have all blurred together in my mind. Now, <laughs> yeah, okay, if so I were to remember correctly, these ones almost look like um, like North American wood frogs. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know what... Uh, is a wood frog not like a posh common frog, really? Yeah, but browner. So, like, yeah, your common well, frog things... has, like, those those specks of green, whereas, yeah, I feel like your North American wood frog has a classically bark sort of coloration going on. Let well, me these Xenohyla... Nope. Nope, completely not like that at all. That was a complete yeah, other frog plain. I was looking at. These ones, yeah. <laughs> these ones look like like uh, someone made a frog out of a, a wet paper bag. Yeah, they, it's like a frog pancake. Yeah, they they look like like an old sun dried tomato. They've got like mm. little squished faces, little sort of pointy little faces, and sort of relatively waxy skin i would say they look super waxy yeah they're like plain orangey brown and if they turn they get little wrinkles yeah fat wrinkles yeah which and, makes uh, sense they waxiness quite... with the sort of salty near the coast sort of thing maybe it's a tougher mm. tougher outer layer for them and they're quite flat as well and it says that they spend a lot of their daytimes nestled in the leaves of bromeliads so maybe that's an adaptation for squeezing in there and staying put quite flat Squishable. Yeah, quite chubby, quite an endearing creature. Um, and yeah, so the authors of this paper, basically what they worked out was that the best way to survey these frogs is in the morning. Because at night, they come out of their bromeliad hidey holes and they go scooting around, presumably eating bugs and as we as we know now, fruit. Uh, so in the morning, they'd walk around all these bromeliads at sort of 5 a.m. and they'd have a look down inside the leaves and they'd find the frogs resting there. And that was how they collected the frogs for this study. And uh, yeah, they were um, opening up the frogs and looking to see what they'd been eating. Um, and yeah, as they found, it was very frequent that they were finding the remains of small berries, long seed pods with lots of like little small seeds, fruits, um, flowers and pulp in the in the stomach contents of these frogs along with the more traditional insects and spiders they're not like obligate fruit eaters they're not only eating fruit that they do fruit does comprise uh, a definite proportion of their diet yeah you had this sort of like they were eating insects pretty much all year round there was only one month that they didn't find any insects in any frogs and that was february and it seems like during that february time they were like super fixated on this 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 plant species um god how on earth do you say that name 
Erythroxylum. Erythroxylum? Yeah. So, do you know what that is? Erythroxylum of a lifolium. Yeah. Um, I actually Googled it, but I can't remember now. Yeah, so it's it's the same family as uh, sort of like cocoa stuff. I what, think as in? That, I think that species is known as like little coca from what I was looking online. And so it's it's one of these these groups of species that have, um, you know, stimulants in that some of them sort of go on to make cocaine and stuff like that. Some of them are sort of herbal medicine and like teas and things. Yeah. So the frogs are consuming a stimulant potentially, or is that more in the leaves and the fruits? Well, from what I was reading with this one is people were warning about it being uh, toxic to consume the leaves. So presumably there's something in the leaves that's chemically yeah, they were uh, saying, active. So in the paper they were saying there's like turpentines. Yeah, there was an I think that one of the other species they they were eating um, also had um, sort of links to uh, sort of medicines and stuff along those lines. There was another one that was a sort of a larger tree. They had uh, Maytenus, which is a sort of a larger, shrubbier tree, from what I can gather, which also has sort of medicinal properties in there as well. Hmm. So it does look like a couple of the ones they're eating have something going on, whether they're actually eating the parts that have those components. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But they do I like the idea kind of, of them just consuming huge amounts of stimulants just to power up their buggying abilities. And they just chow down on them in February and then rest of the year they're just high as a kite, just charging over, <laughs> charging after arthropods. <laughs> they also suggest that maybe... Um they don't have any evidence for this, but it could be that the the frogs eat all these sort of toxic fruits and seeds, and then they end up um, potentially using those toxins in their bodies. Because a lot of yeah, animals, yeah. you know, what's it called? Um, sequestration, where they, you know, eat something poisonous, and then they think, oh, yeah, I'll deposit that in my gland. <laughs> It'll come in useful. Yeah, exactly. They take, Or maybe they take a little bit of it and sort of resynthesize it with a little bit of something else and, and readapt it. It's certainly intriguing that the plants did have, you know, chemicals that were were useful, potentially useful to them. Yeah. But I'm also sort of wondering whether my sort of ignorance of plants is making that more interesting, because actually probably a lot of plants have chemicals that are vaguely toxic at some point if you eat it in the wrong way. <laughs> certainly, yeah. As a child, I remember being quite disappointed that the majority of red berries will in fact kill you or at least make you have a bad time in the toilet. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe, yeah, maybe we are just not adapted to eat these things. But yeah, it would be cool to find out that these frogs were sequestering things. But that is beyond the scope of this study. This study, basically, the news is there's a frog that eats fruit and it eats a lot of fruit. And over the course of the year, it supplements its diet with different fruits and seeds, depending on what's in season. And it and it, it manages to find itself a nice little... Uh, a nice little way to survive. Arthropods are eaten throughout the year, as you said, except for in February. And in February, there's this big peak of this potentially psychoactive one. Maybe they're all off their heads. Um, we don't know. But yeah, and in other times of the year when other other trees are fruiting, they're eating the seeds and stuff. So yeah, an interesting little relationship. You wouldn't ordinarily think of frogs as a seed dispersing mechanism, but here we are. Um, mm. You know, they might well be they might well be a big factor in the success of this Zeric landscape down in the southeast of Brazil. So, uh, yeah, pretty cool frog and um, just it, cool to know. Yeah, it's like an untold, un, 
previously under uh, underappreciated uh, ecosystem role for these little frogs, seed dispersal and uh, seed movement. Especially yeah, if it's something like bromeliads, where presumably dispersal is a little bit trickier for a bromeliad than, say, a larger tree or something. I don't know. Don't know. I don't know anything about how they transfer their seeds. Um, but yeah, so we've got this tiny little frog hiding in a bromeliad. Uh, let's move on, shall we, to our species of the bye week. That where doesn't we've got hide a, in bromeliads. But it is a tiny little snake that's been hiding in plain sight. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Okay, so this is by Esker, Danellen, Pavon Vasquez, Fenker and Kjof. 2021, Phylogeography, Historical Demography and Systematics of the World's Smallest Pythons. Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution this was published in. So we're talking about the world's smallest pythons, the genius Antirrhasia. But in this paper, they start off talking about... Um, Big snakes and little snakes, like the biggest snakes and the little snakes in Pythonidae, pythons. Right. And they actually state in this that pythons grow up to 10 meters long. Oh. I don't agree with that. Oh. I've got a big hmm alert. Isn't that, that the the Teddy Roosevelt bounty on one or whatever? <laughs> yeah, well, so they cite a book from 1997 called Tales of Giant Snakes. And it, basically this story about there being a 10 meter python it, it it stems from a 1912 account of a reticulated python from Sulawesi that was allegedly over 10 meters long mm-hmm. 32 feet 9.5 inches if that's how you operate and yeah i mean apparently scientists are generally skeptical about this account because there's no images there's no sort of like actual good evidence to me it seems completely unlikely that there was a 10 meter long reticulated python so you can add me to the skeptical gang um there is a credible 7.67 meter reticulated python in captivity um it's held at some kind of like sideshow in kansas and it's real big that's a big difference though seven to ten meters yeah like a three meter snake is a big snake and that difference is the equivalent of a big snake yeah that's yeah my feeling is that there probably isn't a 10 meter long snake. And if there ever was, there probably isn't now. Um, well, I feel like there, yeah. was, there was at some point. Because you've got like Titanoboas and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just mean like there's not a 10 meter reticulated python, in my opinion. Um, okay. But yeah, the one that is in captivity is obviously like it was only 10 years old. It just eats deer on the regular. So it's just grown to like some gargantuan size. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, it's pretty good performer as well. Apparently, this snake, who's called Medusa... When it's showtime, she goes into performance mode and uh, during this time she'll stay completely still for those passing by to get a full glimpse of her in her record-stretching glory. It just so happens that freezing is also something snakes do when they are uncomfortable. (laughs) Oh, dear. So, um, yeah. We're talking about pythons at the opposite end of that spectrum, though. I couldn't resist just ragging on that little statement because I don't agree with it. But, yeah. Aside from that, this paper is... Really brilliant. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, so, yeah, we're going back to Antaresia, the anthill pythons. So, Australian pythons, um, the tiny, tiny ones. Uh, and this is a large-scale genetic project. So, they've taken advantage of next-generation sequencing. Huge so, scale, more like. 
huge scale yeah. monster scale so instead of doing the traditional gene sequencing where you sequence a few gene regions these authors authors have got access to literally thousands of little segments of the genome and they can perform a lot more complicated analysis with that and so prior to this paper in Antaresia in Australia, you've got four species. You've got Antaresia stimsoni, Childreni, Maculosa, and Perthensis. And these species have been around for a while, right? So they were, when these accounts were just first described, when these species were described, it was largely on morphological evidence, if not exclusively morphological well, evidence, and realistically. I think there's also this sort of geographic separation of them. Because you've got like... Yeah. Uh, Children eye in the in the north, central north. You've got uh, maculosa on the sort of north uh, east and the sort of coastal areas. Um, Stimson eye covering the entirety of the sort of central Australian area, and then uh, Pavensis, which is northwest with overlap with Stimson eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they the the way it's sort of portrayed to begin with is there are sort of boundaries between them, shall we say? Yeah, well, the thing was, there is children's pythons and stimson's pythons, so that's children I am stimson I, they've been distinguished from each other largely on their colour and pattern, and often it's quite confusing to tell which is which. So herpetologists generally decide which one's which by a north-south divide that you've said. So if right. it's across the top end in northern Australia, then it's a children eye. And if it's uh, across the more southern arid regions, they just call it a stimson eye. <laughs> but despite you see the this sort that, of like circular logic developing, sort of suggesting the need for this paper. <laughs> yeah, basically it's like, well, they look the same, but if they're here, they're that. And if they're here, they're that. Which, you know, for, for many species is actually the way you have to do it. But no one had ever done any genetic study on these guys. So this has happened. And interestingly, um, the genetic evidence they present here suggests that in fact, there isn't really a north-south divide between children I and Stimson I. It's more like a east-to-west divide. Um, and even that's a little bit shaky, right? Uh, yeah, and in fact, really, um, it's not enough to justify calling them separate species. So, yeah, they describe Stimsoni. Is this yeah, essentially what they've? Is this the first sort of species of the bi week where the where a species has been despecified? De yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it is actually. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is quite a big deal. Like you know, uh, Anthurium stimsoni, they say, is not a biological lineage. It has extensive gene flow with children eye, a lack of uh, unique nuclear loci. So basically, the genes aren't that different, um, and a lack of significant morphological difference. So they basically are saying, look, this is formally, we're formally registering the fact that Antheresia stimsoni is no longer a valid species. It's a junior synonym of Antheresia childreni. So all Stimson's pythons are now children's pythons. The other headline, Antheresia maculosa, which as you said, Ben, with the species which occurs along the kind of northeast coast of Australia, but also on the island of New Guinea. Yeah, um, well, yeah, just about. I think it's like one of those ones where it's probably more going on there than people have said because they highlight a couple of times in the paper how little information's really they have on on this sort of New Guinea side of of these pythons. Yeah, well it's um it was Mark O'Shea and the kind of Wolverhampton crew that first spotted the uh I think it was Wolverhampton crew that first spotted the um maculosa on New Guinea. Uh, 
yeah on new guinea um and it was only in 2004 and as you say yeah. i mean that is an island which has not received a massive amount of attention attention every time people go there they describe species so um yeah it could be that basically they know it's found in a couple of locations but the reality is it could be all over the southern forests of new guinea and we just wouldn't know yet and you've got some so pretty this, um, notoriously tricky terrain in the central center center of it too so it's sort of difficult to predict how far inland it's going to go as well, I suppose. Certainly that's the way they're making yeah. it sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but the island of New Guinea, which is comprised of Western New Guinea and Papua New Guinea, the, the nations on there, um, it's 150 kilometers away over this Torres Strait. That's what separates it from Australia. And it turns out that there's also snakes on the islands in between. And that's another big finding of this paper is that the ones on the islands in the Torres Strait and the ones actually on the island of New Guinea are genetically different enough. They are, you know, they have an evolutionary trajectory which is separate than that of the Australian mainland snakes. They found themselves on an island. And yeah, they're also morphologically different. So those three characters, it's genetically different. It's got an evolutionary trajectory that we can see and understand. And it's morphologically different. Therefore, they've described as a new species so we've got a new species of anteresia new species of python which yeah does not happen very often and they've very aptly named this snake anteresia papuensis with the latin name papuensis deriving from papua one of the names given to the island of new guinea where this taxon is found and they suggest the common name papuan spotted python which makes perfect sense because it's a spotty python that lives in papua um and as i said yeah first First described in 2004, it was the first time anyone saw one, and it's taken this well, this long to... Uh, record, you know, scientifically recorded yeah. one. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Human eyes have been laid upon them for millennia, but now uh... scientists have got hold of them. <laughs> what is a millennia? Is that a thousand years? Yeah. It probably just yeah, over, been... probably just over a millennia, right? Because you've got... It depends on which wave of wave of people heading over Papua New Guinea Surely is. Presumably, it's one in... of the earlier ones. So it's got to be... Yeah, it's got to be millennia at this point, right? I'm looking it up now because I want to see one of those maps. Yeah, please do, because I'm actually quite curious. I was going to look it up. Oh, yeah. It looks like Papua New Guinea is one of the really early ones. 42 to 45,000 years ago. Okay, so, so it's, realistically... It's not part of the, like, uh, Polynesian stuff, which can be considerably later. Right. And so this snake, it looks pretty much similar to the other sort of spotted pythons. It's a spotty python. It's quite dark in coloration. Uh, it's got very dense patterning, almost like a sort of granity look to it. Really nice iridescence, small orange eye, heat sensing pits on the face. Um, small as well. Do we know how big this snake is? Uh, which, which one's the uh, the new one, the Papa? Papuensis, yeah. Papuensis. Ah, 1,080 millimetres. So a metre long. Is that SVL? The clade from our analysis that we call... Maculosa C, which is now Papuensis, differs from Perfensis by a larger body size. Max SVL of 1080 millimeters. Okay, so it's bigger than Perfensis. It has a SVL of, yes, maximum. Rec the next paragraph is, is perfectly clear. Max SVL <laughs> of about a meter. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so it's bigger than, than some of the mainland uh, species in this genus. And what about the sort of historical biogeography of this species group? It all started, didn't it? It all started back in... Well, we're going back... Miocene? Miocene. Yeah? 
So, yeah. what, like 13 million years ago? The sort of uh, children eye, Stimpsony eye sort of variation and potential sort of beginning of separation and mess, that's a lot earlier with only a sort of million years in the works, which sort of explains all the admixture and sort of lack of clarity between those two. Um, whereas your, your uh, Papuensis separation seems to have been going on for like three to four million years so two to four million years really but a lot longer and that f- I feel like that puts it into a different uh, thing from Miocene Pelocene? Pil- Pil- My geological epochs are not strong I'll be honest no no same same here to be fair there are some really nice images of it though there's one with like yeah there's one with like all the dinosaurs flying around um so we're going back to one point <laughs> what okay the miocene was 23 million years ago the pliocene was 5.3 the pleistocene was 1.8 so yeah they're coming into the pleistocene okay Myos- yeah the pliocene- okay In, into the pleistocene for the for the early ones for like children eye stimsoni eye but yeah. what we're talking about with the divergence divergence of papuensis is Paleocene. Pil- Pliocene. 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 Yeah? Yeah. Pliocene? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm having difficulty reading. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to help you. You're unwilling to learn. <laughs> yeah, like, so yeah, you know, these things have been going on for quite a while, basically. It's long and short of it. Um, yeah, so there was a common ancestor maybe 15 million years ago, and right. ever since then various divergences have taken place and they've spread throughout Australia and actually these are populations which have been expanding and there's a there's a nice figure in the in the paper of uh, a sort of yellow to red where the species starts in the yellow areas and then expands out to the red zones um, and it's really cool to see I've not seen a, an image like that before um, but it basically shows that the most of these species have undergone quite large dramatic range extensions in relatively recent geological history um, so yeah, the Antaresia pythons starting 15 million years ago just taken over Australia. <laughs> With their little pythony ways. Yep. But yeah, really cool paper and uh, a fun one to dig into. And yeah, just exciting that there's a new species of Antaresia. I feel like it's a really, um, a really popular group of snakes. And yeah, it was a great suggestion. That was actually a Patreon suggestion by Hedrigal. So thanks very much, Hedrigal. And uh, if you want to become a patron of ours, uh, we'd be extremely grateful. You can at Patreon dot com slash herp highlights have you got any other business ben no i did want to like just point out that figure nine is really awesome in this paper as a as a like key to show these are the things that are different between these species these are the things that are the same between these species that i haven't seen in a in a um like genetic taxonomic paper ever and i really like it because it's like a little um I don't even know what the, I don't know what to call this, but it's it's wonderful. <laughs> it's just a wonderful figure. Mm. I wanted to say how wonderful it is. <laughs> it's a very efficient way to show a lot of information, right? With, with, mm. When you're looking at differences and similarities. Cool. All right. Well, if you haven't got any other business, I think that pretty much draws it to an end. So, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're on social media, and uh, you can email us herphighlights at gmail dot com. Okay, yeah, so we had a we had a note from Scott, Scott Iper. We we hammed up talking about dorsal compression and lateral compression in the sea snake I am episode. not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I was listening back to it and I was like, this is pretty fishy. Um, so, yeah. 
laterally so lateral compression is in the vertical plane and dorsal compression is in the horizontal plane so horizontally compressed and vertically compressed you could say that oh no because that still implies it no oh god i hate no my brain doesn't it it just doesn't is it flattened or is it squished tall (laughs) laterally compressed is tall right dorsally compressed is flat okay yeah and we said the op- um, presumably we sent the op- we probably said it right at one point and then wrong two other times yeah I'm not sure what we said but that's just a bit of clarification from Scott so thank you Scott and uh, yeah, that's yeah I think that's it desperately needed um, yeah so yeah thanks very much for listening awesome thanks for listening talk about some big pythons in this snake in this snake Mm -hmm. in this episode in this what am i saying the small snake eats the larger snakes (laughs) and the larger snakes eat even bigger snakes ah that's not what i was going to say though